Go out to the city and bring in those who don't have a seat at the table. The reason why they're in the streets, the reason why they're in the alleys, the reason why they're crippled and blind and lame with no health care is because their interest is not being represented at the table. Welcome to Baptist Without an Adjective, a podcast of Word and Way. I'm your host, Word and Way editor and president, Brian Kaler. On this program, we'll hear from Baptists from across the denominational, ethnic, national, and ideological lines that too often divide us. At Word and Way, we've been informing and inspiring Baptists since 1896. Learn more about us at wordandway.org. This episode is sponsored in part by the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship. The Cooperative Baptist Fellowship is a network of people and churches working together to spread the hope of Christ. For more than 25 years, CBF has been driven by its mission to serve Christians and churches as they discover and fulfill their God-given mission. Join the fellowship at work in long-term global missions in more than 25 countries. Join them too as they strive to form healthy congregations and support the ministers that serve them. Put your faith to action. Visit cbf.net to get connected. In this episode, we're going to hear a talk from Kevin Cosby, president of Simmons College of Kentucky. It's a historically black college in Louisville, Kentucky, that's affiliated with the National Baptist Convention of America. This is the second of two talks that he gave to the North American Baptist Fellowship. The first one was in episode 142, so if you missed that, you can go back and check it out, though you don't necessarily have to listen to them in order, so you could stay with this one right now. His first conversation to this virtual gathering, because everything's virtual this year, due to coronavirus. So his first talk to the NABF was appropriately enough about thinking about life beyond COVID. What is it going to look like after COVID? And what do we need to be doing right now to prepare for ministry in that future world? The second talk that you're going to be listening to in this episode is about beyond protest. What can we be learning during this time of protest against racial injustices so that we can move forward into the future and have greater racial justice in our society and in our churches. I was honored to be able to participate in the panel conversation after this particular talk with a couple of other Baptists from across North America to to reflect on what Dr. Cosby had to say and to offer some of our own thoughts. Still, I wanted to be able to share his presentations a little bit broader audience. And so here's the second talk by Kevin Cosby of Simmons College of Kentucky to the annual gathering of the North American Baptist Fellowship on October 21st, Beyond Protest. We are dealing with COVID-19, but we're also dealing with COVID-16-19. And COVID-19, we know what that is, but COVID-16-19 is the date that the first enslaved Africans were brought to Jamestown, Virginia in August of 1619. Last year, we celebrate the 400th anniversary of blacks in the United States. And in those 400 years, in 1619 in Jamestown, Virginia, blacks were on the bottom of every social measurement in 1619 because they came to the United States as slaves. And 400 years later, in every social economic measurement, black people are still on the bottom. We had de- deceived ourselves in the United States that we had become 
post-racial. But COVID-19, and then of course in 2005, Hurricane Katrina dispelled the myth of a post-racial United States. We are not post-racial. It proved that we were post-black. And uh, post-black, by post-black, I simply mean that we no longer addressed issues related to race. Uh, we did not want to address the original sin of, of the United States, which was racial injustice. Today's message in this thought of having to move beyond the COVID-1619, a move beyond protest, is a very familiar story in Luke chapter 14, and I want to read it. Luke chapter 14, beginning with verse 1, and then verses 7 through 24. This is what Luke says. One Sabbath, Jesus went to eat a meal at the home of one of the leading Pharisees, and the people were watching Jesus closely. Jesus noticed how some of the guests were choosing the best places, so he told them this parable, told this parable to all of them. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not sit in the best place. It could happen that someone more important than you has been invited. And your host who invited both of you would have to come and say to you, let him have this place. Then you would be embarrassed and have to sit in the lowest place. Instead, when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that your host will come to you and say, Come on up, my friend, to a better place. This will bring you honor in the presence of all the other guests. For those who make themselves great will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be made great. Then Jesus said to his host, when you give a lunch or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and in this way you will be paid for what you did. When you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed because they are not able to pay you back. God will repay you on the day the good people rise from death. When one of the guests sitting at the table heard this, he said to Jesus, how happy are those who sit down at the feast in the kingdom of God? Jesus said to him, there was once a man who was giving a great feast to which he invited many people. And when it was time for the feast, he sent to his servants to tell his guests, come, everything is ready. But they all began, one another, to make excuses. The first one told the servant, I have brought a field and must go and look at it. Please accept my apologies. Another one said, I have brought five pairs of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please accept my apologies. Another one said, I have gotten married and for that reason, I cannot come. The servant went back and told all this to his master. The master was furious and said to his servants, hurry to the streets and alleys of the town and bring back the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Soon the servant said, your order has been carried out, sir. There is room for more. So the master said to the servant, go out to the country roads, lanes, and make people come in, for my house will be full. I tell you that none who were invited will taste my dinner. So here's the story. Jesus is at a party, 
And Jesus, Jesus just loved parties. He just loved feasts. He loved to go to feasts. By the way, it's, inter it's an interesting note that of all the feasts Jesus went to, and he was constantly going to feast, he never got invited back. <laughs> he never got invited back to any feast that he attended. And you will understand why he didn't get invited back. You have to be careful when you invite Jesus to your feast. Verse, we, so he went to the, this party, and, and the party was, was hosted by a very affluent person in the, the society in which Jesus lived. And um, Jesus used this party as an opportunity to teach important truths about the kingdom of God. In fact, I've entitled this message from the hood to the hollow. From the hood to the hollow. And I'll explain what I mean by that. I borrowed that from a politician who has a program, state representative who has a program here in Kentucky called From the Hood to the Holler. And it's, uh, it's, it's catching on in our state, which is a very poor state. And of course, the hood is where black people live and the holler is where poor whites live in Appalachia. So he has this party. Jesus is at this party, a very wealthy man who is hosting this parting and it it um it's a who's who's that's on the guest list now in in the day of jesus the more affluent homes and residencies usually had two primary rooms one was a room when they were hosting a, a an event like a banquet one was a room where the guests would mingle and the guests would just socialize in the room. And then the second room was the room for the actual dining where the eating took place. What's happening in this story is that the guests are mingling in the room, the big, huge room where guests mingle. And then apparently a door opens up and a servant comes out and the servant says that the meal is ready, come now and eat. So he summons the guest to the banquet hall. And what Jesus noticed was that there was a mad scramble to rush from the place where people were socializing to the room where people would be dining. And the mad rush was not that everyone was trying to get to the table to eat food. Instead, there was a mad rush to get to the table to establish rank, position, and hierarchy. In those days, procedure and protocol was important. It reminds me of how we used to have our pulpit furniture arranged when I first started as a pastor back in the day when Abraham Lincoln was a precinct captain in the state of Kentucky. I've been at St. Stephen's in my 41st year. And back in those days, protocol was important. You would have three seats in the pulpit, uh, something that we must admit in the church that we borrowed from Constantine because it's, it's like the throne. And the big seat was in the middle where the senior pastor was. And if you had a multiple assistant or associate ministers, ranking was important. You, you sat on the left side and the right side next to the pastor. Well, this type of procedure and protocol and rank was important 
when it comes to seating in those reclined uh, couches that they reclined on around the table. Now, the problem with the seating arrangements in this story is this, is that in many instances, the seats are already prearranged. For example, if you've ever gone to a banquet and you had to sit on the dais, there are times when they will put name tags in front of the plate so you will know where you're supposed to see. The problem with this story is the host did not put name tags in front of the plates, which meant then that each one of the guests who, was, who ran to the tables had to make a self-assessment about where they thought they should be seated. Now, the chief seat was the seat for the host. So you had the chief seats, that's where the host was. The closer you were to the chief seat, the host seat, then that reflected your rank and your importance. So you have the chief seat, and at the very end, farther away from the chief seat, we want to call those the chump seats. And one place you did not want to be, you wanted to be close to the chief seat, you didn't want to be close to or in the chump seats. And each person had to assess where they felt they belong. So they, they have all, everyone has, is sitting at the table and one person is sitting right next to the host and uh, who is the, who's at the chief seat. And he looks down and he sees a man who's in the chump seat, who really should be in the chief seat. And he looks at the man who's in, who thought he should be in the chief seat and says to him, now you need to go down to the chump seat. And he looked at the man in the chump seat and says, you need to come up to the chief seats. And Jesus uses this to teach us some valuable lessons. Now, there are three people that Jesus, or three groups that Jesus is going to address. And the first group is the guest. Uh, in fact, I think he even mentions the word guest in verse seven. He does. It says, Jesus noticed how some of the guests were choosing the best places. So he's going to say something to the guest. And then he's going to say something to the host, and he even mentions the word host in verse 12. In verse 12, he's going to say something to the host. And then the third group he's going to say something to, if you'll go down to verse 22 or 23, is the uninvited. It's the uninvited. Uh, go to verse 22, if you would. Verse 21, go to 21, I'm sorry. Verse 21, it says, the servant went back and told his master, master was furious and said, hurry out to the streets and alleys of the town and bring back the poor, crippled and the blind and the lame. Soon the servant said, your order has been filled, carried out, carried out, sir, but there is room for more. So the master said to the servant, go out to the country and lanes and make people come in. So those are the uninvited. You have the guest. You have the host, and then he's going to say something to the uninvited. Now, it doesn't take much imagination to take this story from the back then to the right now, 
to build a bridge from the first century to the 21st century because these three groups represent the three perennial groups that you will find in every society. You will find the guests who get to come to the table. You have the host who are who have the power of the table. And then you have the uninvited who do not have a seat at the table. And it has been said that if you're not at the table, you're probably on the menu because you do not have power and influence. And we're gonna talk about the two groups that are at the table and why there is protest and how we can move beyond protest. First of all, consider what Jesus is saying to the first group, three Greeks, groups, guests, hosts, uninvited. To the guests, he says this. He says, be careful about your own self-assessment. He, he's, he's not talking about table manners. He's talking about the dangers of self-promotion and the utter importance of humility. Humility. Each one of the guests had to make an assessment about where they thought they ranked in hierarchy. And they felt, for whatever reason, that they should have a, a position of supremacy. So this is, you got guest supremacy, you've got white supremacy, that they should be close to power. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Humility is simply the art of deferring to someone else. It does not diminish who you are. It just simply says, I will defer to someone else. It does not mean that you're not smart. It's not mean you're not talented. It just means I will defer to somebody else. It is, it is the, the, it's what Jesus did in the incarnation when he abandoned all of his prerogatives as God and entered into our humanity as a servant. He deferred. That's all humility is. So it's not the seat you're in that defines you. You are the one that defines the seat. You do not need a seat to define you. If you are a small-minded individual and you have a big seat, the big seat, even if you're the president of these United States, if you're small, having a big seat like the 45th president of the United States does not make you big. Conversely, if you have a seat, quote unquote, in the chump seats, like Jesus did, Jesus took the chump seat. He deserved the chief seat, but he took the chump seat so that we could have some chief seats. And being in the chump seat, which he was all his life, he was born between animals. He was baptized between sinners. He was crucified between thieves, but he rose up between angels. So he's saying something to us about the 
about humility. And humility is, is it's not just having something, according to C.S. Lewis, but is, it is the pride of having something more than someone else. It, that's what arrogance is, or pride is rather. Pride is not just having something, but it's I've got something you don't have. And for us to truly be co collaborative and cooperative in ministry, it's going to take humility and deferring to someone else and having a mindset of, of that there's a world of abundance, that if there is a bottleneck in the providence of God, in the disbursement of God's blessings, the bottleneck is not in the, in the providence of God. The bottleneck is in our pride in which we will not allow the blessings of God that God has given to us to pour down and channel to other people. It is hoarding instead of being generous and representing the God of abundance. So this is what he says to the guests who are at the table. And then he says something to the host. He says, now, when you have a banquet, don't invite your relatives, don't invite your rich friends, because they will be in a position to invite you back. Instead, invite the marginalized, the poor, the lame, those who desperately need a feast, said, invite them. Now, in the day of Jesus, this would be economic suicide, because at these meals, it was a form of patronage, and in these meals, uh, deals were made. So inviting the rich, inviting the wealthy was reciprocity. It was a transactional relationship and it was economically strategic. And But Jesus is saying that don't make your relationships, don't, the thrust of your relationship should be non-transactional. That's not to say we won't have transactional relationships, but ultimately we should have transactional relationships to the ends as Christians that we will have non-transactional relationships and be in a position to help people who are not in a position to help us back. So much of our giving is transactional. At Christmas time, if somebody sends you a card, uh, the first thought out of your, in your mind is not even to read the card or appreciate the card, but you ask yourself, did I send them a card? Or you ask your spouse, did we send them a card? Because it's often at Christmas time, what we're engaging in is not gift giving, but object exchange. We are exchanging objects instead of giving gifts. Jesus says, when you invite, when you have a banquet to the host, you bring to the table people who are poor, crippled, lame, and blind people who will not be able to repay you back. And Jesus basically said the same thing in Matthew 25 and 34 through 40, where basically Jesus said, you know, uh, that I was, uh, then the king will say to the people on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, come and possess the kingdom, which is prepared for you since the creation of the world. I was hungry and you fed me thirsty and you gave me drink. I was, I was a stranger and you received me in your homes naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me in prison and you visited me. The righteous will then answer him. 
When, Lord, did we ever see you hungry, feed you thirsty, and give you drink? When did you ever see you a stranger and, and welcome you into our homes or naked and clothe you? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? The king replied, tell you, whenever you did this for the least important of these fellows, fellow followers of mine, you did it for me. In other words, they had no idea. These righteous people had no idea that they were righteous, which is a which is true of righteous people. What makes righteous people is that they don't know they're righteous. And what makes bad people bad is they have no awareness that they're bad. There's two wonderful stories in the Old Testament I find so amusing. And it's the story of Moses and the story of Samson. Moses had been in the presence of God, summoning God, and his face was glowing with the Shekinah glory of God. And when he came down from the mountain, it says that his face was glowing and he did not know it. He was getting better. He was glowing and he was unaware that he was getting better. And sometimes we are getting better like Moses and we don't know we're getting better. God is not only omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent, but God is omnisneaky. Sometimes we're getting better. Moses' face glowed and he didn't know it. Listen to what it says about Samson. After Delilah cut off his hair, took him to the barbershop, she said, Samson, wake up. The Philistines were coming. And he got up to fight. And the Bible says, Samson did not know the Lord had left him. So here is one person who is getting better, Moses, and didn't realize it. Here's another person, Samson, who's getting worse and was unaware of it. Jesus says, make sure that your relationships are non-transactional. The motive for giving as a Christian is compassion. Bringing people to the table, not to get something out of it, but compassion. Jesus John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave. God gives out of love. So he talks to the, to the guests, be humble. He talks to the host, be non-transactional. And then he talks to the uninvited. And Jesus tells the parable of a man who has a big feast. And interesting, the word great feast in that verse uh, which says a great feast is the word mega. Mega. That's a word we're, we're seeing a lot of, but it's a mega feast. And these persons who have been invited, they say yes. And the no, reason we know they say yes, because when the meal is ready, the servants are going back and goes back and tells them that the feast is now ready. That's important because they had agreed to come to the feast, but when it was time to partake of the feast, they declined. The reason I believe they accepted initially and then didn't follow through was because they didn't realize that in order to take part in the feast, you had to be willing to disrupt your own agenda. And following Christ, disrupts agendas. It disrupts commitments to family. It disrupts commitments to business. 
uh, it disrupts things. And each one of these persons who declined wanted cheap grace and did not want to have their lifestyle disrupted. But radical discipleship, according to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Jesus calls us, Bonhoeffer says, he bids us come die with him. And because they wanted cheap grace and not costly grace, they were not willing to sell everything they had in order to get the pearl of great price. They forfeited the, the banquet. And then Jesus says, I want you to go out to a particular group of people who are not at the table. And he defines who that group of people is who are not at the table. And in every society you have, I don't care where you are, you have, you have a caste system, caste, those who are at the bottom caste. You have those who are at the table. You have those who are invited because of patronage. They get the invited, they're at the table in order to keep the system in place. And then you have the uninvited who are not only at the table, but who have no representatives at the table looking out for their interest. If you want to know why the black community is in an uproar, it is because the black community is, has never been invited to the table. We are on the menu. Now, not only are we not at the table, but to a great degree, we don't have representatives who are looking out for our unique particular interest at the table. And I want to do, and Jesus names the two groups of people. Notice who they are. He says in verse 21, the servant went back and told his master, the master is furious and said to his servant, hurry out to the streets and alleys of the town. The town, that word town, is the word city. It's the word polis, P-O-L-I-S, polis, from which we get, for example, Indianapolis. Indianapolis is the city of the Indians. Annapolis is the city of Anna, the wife of Lord Baltimore. Minneapolis, where George Floyd was killed, is the city of the two rivers in, uh, there in Minnesota, the many rivers the two waters. So you have the police. He says, go out to the city. That's the hood. Bring in the people in the hood. My And Jesus tells his servants, which we are his servants. We are his, we are his deacons. Go out to the city and bring in those who don't have a seat at the table. The reason why they're in the streets, the reason why they're in the alleys, the reason why they're crippled and blind and lame with no health care is because their interest is not being represented at the table. So represent, make sure that those who are at the table are those who are from the city. But then Jesus also has an agenda for another group of people. Look at verse 22. Verse 22 says, soon the servant said, your order has been carried out, but there is room for more. There's always room for more. There's always room for everybody at the table. We must stop thinking about scarcity and start thinking about abundance. Jesus said, when you pray, he said, pray, give us this day our daily bread. There's no, that's, that's plural, our daily bread. The poet said, 
when you pray the Lord's Prayer, not once can you say I. When you pray the Lord's Prayer, not once can you say my. But when you pray the Lord's Prayer, you must include you must include your brother. There's always room for another. So verse 23 says, so master, the master said, go out to the country. That's Appalachia, where poor whites live. Poor, suffering whites live out on the country, in the country. So it's interesting that the two groups who are not at the table, the system has so manipulated us that we are fighting each other. Poor whites and poor blacks are fighting each other. When Martin Luther King was in jail in Birmingham in 63, during the Birmingham crusade, he was being guarded by a poor white corrections officer. And he started engaging the correction officer. And he asked the correction officer, he said, sir, how much money do you make? And the correction officer told him what his annual salary was. And Dr. King said, may I make a recommendation to you? He said, I think you need to unlock this cell and you need to come in here and sit next to me because we are in the same situation. We are both not being represented at the table. And perhaps one of the reasons why poor whites overwhelmingly benefit or vote for people who do not have their best economic interests at heart is because when you've not been at the table for so, for a long time, it's easy to believe that the reason why you're not at the table is because the black man is get your seat or the immigrant has your seat or we got to put a ban on Muslims because the Muslim has your seat. No, it is not the Muslim. It is not the black man. It is it is not the LBGT person. It is it. What, who has your seat are these corporate elites who have so dis, maldistributed wealth in this country. And only when we have a coalition of those who are on the country roads and those who are in the streets and alleys in the city, can we, can we truly begin to change things. Now, I want to say this about the protest, and we'll just transition, and that is to say that while we should be concerned about both groups, those, the, the hood and the holler, that there are in fact, there in fact are some unique justice claims that Black Americans have that whites don't have. Blacks have a unique experience in America. We are the only forced immigrants into this country. And I want to go over this, this justice piece. And this is what I believe is the roots of all that is troubling America, uh, the roots of black poverty. And it's an injustice acrostic I want to share with you. So justice requires not only the ceasing and desisting of injustice, that's reform but it also requires making amends for injustices and damages inflicted for prior wrongdoing. If you're taking notes, those two words are critical words to understanding how we can move beyond protest. Justice is both reform and repair. White America thinks we have reformed and we have not. 
We have not really reformed. We, it's a fact that in terms of laws, that the laws have changed on the books, but we have not fulfilled the requirements of justice until you repair those that you have damaged. Martin Luther King Jr. said that if you have unjustly put a person in jail for 40 years and then you let them go, that's reform, but that's not justice. It is only when you repair them for their 40 years of lost wages that you have true justice because justice is reform and repair. Zacchaeus said to Jesus, a half of my goods I give to the poor. That's reform. And then he said, if I, if I have defrauded anybody, I will restore them fourfold. I'm going to restore them. That's repair. So it requires making amends, repair for injustice and damages inflicted for prior wrongdoings. The essence of justice is the redistribution of gains earned through the perpetuation of injustice. If restitution is not made and reparations not instituted to compensate for prior injustices, these injustices are in effect rewarded. And the benefits of such rewards conferred on the perpetrators of injustice will continue to draw interest to be reinvested and to be passed on to their children who will use their inherited advantages to continue to exploit the children of the victims of injustice of their ancestors. Consequently, injustice and inequality will be maintained across the generations, as well as the deleterious social, economic and political outcomes, which is to say that because wealth has been maldistributed a centuries ago, the disadvantages that have come to black people have been passed down transgenerationally. The advantages that white people have that they're ignorant of has been passed down to whites. They are unaware of it. Reparations is reform and repair. That is the preeminent word that you're hearing about justice to move us to post post protest that is going just like that table that there was room at the table for people in the hood and the holler but they were not invited to the table jesus is is redistributing what's at the table so that people who have been locked out are excluded. Now we call that socialism. That's not socialism from the, from the, that's justice. That's justice. Now here's the roots of black poverty. No one, no group in the United States experiences these seven atrocities. No one including Native American. Native Americans have experienced about six of these, but they have not experienced all seven. And the, the unique thing about Native Americans is that Native Americans are the indigenous population in this country. They have protected status, which is what black people need. We need a protected status like indigenous people. Here's the roots of black poverty. Jim Crow. So after Reconstruction in 1877, thing we had semi-slavery. We're black. So Jim Crow, 
you, urban renewal, which, which was really Negro removal. It destroyed black neighborhoods, uh, black businesses. It was called slum removal, but it was really black removal. S, slavery. That is unique to, to blacks. And let me say this. That's even, that's even embedded in the Constitution that black people would be for purposes of taxation of three fifths of a person for taxation. Now you will hear, and I've heard people push back against blacks as slaves and say, well, Irish were slaves. Irish were not slaves. They were oppressed, but they were not slaves because Irish came over to this country, immigrated on their own free will. Black people did not immigrate to the United States for the purpose of seeking a better life. Black people were forced against their will to this country. And what made slavery so bad was that you were chattel. You were literally the property of someone. And not only were you the property of someone, it's, it's, it was the father and his son and his great son, grandson and his great grandson and his great great grandson and his great great grandson. And even today in 2020, you still feel the effects of it. So slavery, T, terrorism, or lynching, the lynchings that took place in the South, which was a form of terrorism to keep black people in their place. I, incarceration. There are more black men in jail today than there are women in jail all over the world. So if you to take all the women all over the world and count how many women there are in jail, there's more black men in jail than there are all women in jail around the world. Incarceration due in part to the policies of neoliberalism. I am radically opposed to Donald Trump, but I have some problems and challenges like most thinking black people with, with the policies that were implemented on the Biden, Clinton and Biden and Clinton, namely 86 crime bill, which had disparities of 100 to one crack versus powder cocaine. That was a Biden bill or the 94 crime bill, three strikes and you're out. That was a Clinton bill. And we have voted overwhelmingly for the Democrats, but mass incarceration has destroyed the black community because it has removed black men from the black community. And then once they return, it has made them lepers in their own community. Incarceration, that targeted black people, as Michelle Alexander talks about in her classic book back in 2010, The New Jim Crow. See cops in courts. I need not tell you about the shootings that triggered the protest, the shooting of Breonna Taylor, uh, George Floyd's death, Ahmaud Arbery's death, cops in courts, and then e-economic exclusion, black people being locked out of economic opportunities. And this is the root of black poverty. What has this resulted in? It has resulted in black people are 13% of the population. We control 2.6% of the wealth. White America is 60% of the population. White America controls 90% of the wealth. We wanna integrate everything but the money. We don't want 
We don't want black people at the table. Let me tell you what racism is like. And white people sometimes are, un are ignorant of this. When, imagine yourself being in a restaurant, the restaurant is closing. You're having fun with your friends in the restaurant. You don't know the restaurant is closing. The owner of the restaurant takes the sign at the door and turns it. And the sign on the door says to those on the outside, closed. But the sign, the sign where you are that you're looking at on the inside of the restaurant says open. So from where you're sitting, you think everything is open because you are an insider at the table. But for those who are not at the table on the outside, what the sign they see is closed. And that's why Jesus said, you got to go out there and make them come in. And the reason you have to make them come in is because they've been so excluded from the table for so long that they are suspicious and don't believe. They've checked out. Many are criticizing black men because black men don't want to vote like black men should be voting. And the reason they don't vote is because they've checked out. They don't believe. You got to make them come in. You make them come in by policies of justice. In order for us to move beyond protest, we've got to recognize that we are in various stages of learning. There are four stages of learning according to Abraham Maslow. I just want to mention two. One is unconscious incompetence. In other words, when many, most white Americans are not conscious that they are incompetent as it relates to race. They are not conscious of the fact that they have privilege. They are not, because it's not taught. There are two types of ignorance. And if you can just write this down, it's very important on the side. Two types of ignorance. There is conscience ignorance and unconscious ignorance, or there is woeful ignorance and willful ignorance. Woeful and willful ignorance. White America is ignorant of their ignorance. It is both woeful and willful ignorance. Woeful ignorance is mental. Willful ignorance is moral. Willful ignorance seeks to block off awareness of injustice in order to avoid responsibility. In order to maintain the status quo, it is necessary for whites to believe and keep on believing that they are innocent. They are innocent because they just happen to have the superior position in the world by some mysterious way. The reason why blacks are locked in poverty is because of who gets invited to the table. That's it. It's engineered that way. Those who are in the country, those who are in the towns of the city, the structure it was that was engineered that they get excluded from the table. Here's some important concepts. This is the dynamics of racism. Racism is four things. Here's what racism is. One, prejudice. Prejudice, an opinion or judgment usually unfavorable form beforehand with no bias except personal feelings. All of us have our prejudices. But racism is a step further. It is individual racism. Prejudice plus power. The power of an individual to harm a person of another race or ethnic group 
that does not have power to resist. That is individual racism, prejudice plus power. Institutional racism, prejudice plus power plus policies. The power of institutions and government to implement policies, practices, and procedures that reinforce white skin privilege. For example, what takes place in our school system is institutional racism. The absence of black teachers, the absence of a black curriculum in the schools so that whites and black students do not learn about the history of this country as it relates to race. Because blacks are not at the table, we're not at the table setting policies, practices, and procedures. Systemic racism, prejudice plus power, plus part pl policies, plus partnerships. The partnering of institutions within society to work cooperatively to reinforce white social, political, and economic advantages. So the school system is in cahoots with media. Media is in cahoots with the business community and they all are reinforcing privileges that benefit white Americans in which black people are excluded from. The whole reparations piece, there's a group called ADOS that I'm a part of, Dr. Samuel Tobin, President of the National Baptist Convention is a part of, and this is very important. What must happen in black America are these three things, identification. Who should be repaired? Because we're using a lot of ambiguous terms in these days that conflate the black experience with the experience of other minorities and oppressed groups. Blacks who are the descendants of slaves have a unique singular justice claim. So identification means to avoid terms like race, multicultural, diversity, minority, people of color. I cringe when people use the term in reference to me, people of color. I don't want to be called a pe I'd rather really be called a colored person than a person of color. Distressed community neighborhoods, the poor. We must speak with specificity about who we want to be at the table. In that story, Jesus said there are people in the in the country and there are people who are on the streets. He didn't blend them. Each one of them had their own unique experiences, challenges, and justice claims. And we must narrow down with specificity what is the justice claims of Kevin Cosby, whose great-grandfather was a slave, whose grandfather and father were born into semi-slavery called sharecropping. Where in Northern Alabama, where my parent, my grandfather's from, Northern Alabama, Limestone County, Athens, where Michael Hicks, who is my cousin, who is also from Northern Alabama, Athens, who's helping me. We're both from Northern Alabama. And we have the great, same great, great grandfather. And in Alabama, appropriations for education for white kids was $15 per student. For black kids, it was 32 cents. And that is why our grandparents did not go both grandmother and grandfather beyond the eighth grade. 
This was an injustice. So we have to identify who should be repaired. Secondly, concentration, which is to close this enormous wealth gap, which is expanding so that by 2053, black Americans and by 2053 will have median zero wealth. I'm the president of a historically black college and university. All of the 101 HBCUs together with their endowment have about $2 billion. If you take the top five HBCUs like Howard, Fisk, Morehouse, Morgan State, and just consider the, the 96, 96 HBCUs together have $500,000. That's it. $500,000 among them. Harvard has 50 billion. A school in our state called Berea. It's a private college in the in in the in the in in, in eastern Kentucky. It has a billion dollars. So closing that wealth gap that has been created because blacks have been excluded and then reparations, which is the federal government repairing black people. The governor of our state, Governor Andy Bashir, during the height of the protest, because Louisville was one of the cities that was, is the epicenter of the protest, Minneapolis and Louisville, because Louisville is where Breonna Taylor was killed by the cops. And he said this, and I close. He said that as a white man, he will never know what it means to be black. But three things whites seeking to be anti-racist can do. He says they can listen, they can learn, and they can act. And that's what must take place. And Jesus said, bring them all to the table. Last week, I was in the our newspaper, our, the front page of our newspaper, and someone told me, so I went to a store in the hood where I live and went and got a newspaper. When I pulled in, to the parking lot, right next to me was a family that was living in a car. It was a white family. And I went in and got my paper and I saw in that car, a, a wife on the front seat, the father in the driver's seat, a older thin grandmother in the back seat and three kids sleeping under blankets with all of their clothes in the seat. And it was obvious they were living in the car. My the spirit of God came upon me as I left the store after getting the paper and said, Kevin, you went there because you wanted to get a paper because you're thinking about yourself and you want to see yourself in the paper. He said, but it's not about you. Look in that car. And I looked in that car that was right beside me and said, what are you going to do about it? And I said, well, let me do something because it was such a horrific scene. And so I didn't want to approach the car because he's it's it's in the hood and they're living in a car and they were little would be startled by a black man coming up to the car. So I I did something that I knew could bring about unity. I pulled out all the money that was in my wallet, put it in my hand, held it up in my hand so that the white man in the seat could see it. He was a young white man but you could tell he's homeless. And he rolled down his window and I said, sir, I am who I am, sir. 
because I've had white people who helped me bring me to the table. They were good white people of justice who brought me to the table. Would you let me pay this forward and give this to you? Tears came in his eyes. He started crying and the kids stayed asleep. His wife looked up and said, thank you. But what I will never forget, the grandmother in the back seat who was frail, emaciated, face was thin. She marshaled up enough strength with tears in her eyes, with her hands together in a form of prayer and said, thank you. Thank you, we needed this. And she wanted to shake my hand, but because of COVID-19, I didn't. I just put my hands across my heart and I let her know through my gift that I loved her. And I'm glad that a black man was able to do this for a white people who were not at the table. And that is the essence of Christianity. You've got the guest. You've got the host, you've got the uninvited. And the church must be about the task of finding those who have been uninvited and bring them to the table. Because if the strength of the strong is not made available for the weak, then the weakness of the weak will cross the fence and undermine the strength of the strong. We are in this thing together. If we're on an airplane 30,000 feet in the air and you're in first class with comfortable seats and I'm in coach and get half a Coca-Cola and some peanuts and the pilot says there is engine problems in coach where the engines are, and we're 30,000 feet in the air, and you say, well, that doesn't affect me because I am in first class. Because we're on the same plane, if coach goes down, so does first class. And if the, and if the hood and the holler go down and I'm invited to the table, then ultimately those who are at the table will experience decline also, which is taking place in our cities because Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread from the hood to the holler. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode of Baptist Without an Adjective. You can learn more about Simmons College of Kentucky at simmonscollegeky.edu. And you can learn more about the North American Baptist Fellowship at nabfellowship.org. As always, you can find us at wordandway.org. And don't forget to check out our sponsoring partner for this week's episode, the Cooperative Baptist Fellowship at cbf.net. If you've enjoyed this episode, I hope that you will share it with your friends on Facebook and head over to iTunes or your favorite podcast platform and write a positive review to help more people to find the show. It really does help. You can find easy-to-share links at podcast.wordandway.org. If you'd like to give to support this podcast, we greatly appreciate it, especially during these unusual times of coronavirus. And so all you have to do at wordandway.org is hit the donate button, and whatever you give there will help support the production of this podcast, as well as our website and monthly magazine. And speaking of that magazine, if you're not a subscriber, you really are missing out, and I have a special offer for you. Get your first year for half off. Just go to tinyurl.com slash wwoffer. 
you have any comments or feedback about this program, you can send those to me at bkaler at wordandway.org. Thanks for listening.